Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the slow-motion disaster that is the worldwide refugee crisis. We start with the recent focus on Afghan refugees fleeing their country in the wake of America's 20-year war, before expanding the view to American and European policies toward asylum seekers from around the world. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, All In With Chris Hayes, Vox, Art and Ideas, the PBS NewsHour, Vlog Brothers, the Documentary Podcast, and In the Thick. In response to the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, President Biden's allocated half a billion dollars in new funds for reallocating, for relocating Afghan refugees, including those who applied for special immigrant visas, known as SIVs. The U.S. had already vowed to help evacuate over 80,000 Afghan civilians who qualify for these visas and risk retribution from the Taliban, such as translators and interpreters for the U.S. military or NATO. There's already a backlog of more than 17,000 Afghan nationals, 53,000 of their family members awaiting visa approval. For more, we go to Manoj Govindaya. He is the Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Educational and Legal Services, known as RAISIS, which has resettled more than 600 Afghan refugees since 2017, including 116 this year, among them 79 kids and a family of 10 just last night. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Manoj. I'll start off by saying what is happening. You're talking about hundreds. Uh, the number of people who are trying to get out of Afghanistan right now are in the thousands, perhaps the tens of thousands. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. Um, yeah, I mean, we <clears throat> we are talking about thousands of people who are trying to flee Afghanistan. About eighteen to twenty thousand have applied for something called special immigrant visas (SIVs), which are available to Afghan citizens who provided valuable and faithful service to the United States government or contractors to support their efforts during the the U.S. led war. Um, the, the average processing time for this visa is over 800 days. So it takes several years, this process, and it involves all sorts of security checks and background checks and letters of support from U.S. military commanders that confirm an individual's assistance, you know, all, all sorts of um, documents that need to be provided uh, in order for someone to apply for this visa and make their way to the United States with permanent residency and eventually be able to bring their family over. Now, of course, if there's 18,000 people who are in the pipeline, we have known for many years, at least 800 days, that there is this number of people who are trying to make their way here who appear eligible for permanent residency in the U.S. And yet our, our our government, the administration, has taken very few efforts to date to actually support this population, knowing that we are withdrawing from Afghanistan and that this particular group of people who have provided support to the United States are at serious risk of harm once a, a different government in this situation, now the Taliban, take over in the country. 
Um, the Biden administration has evacuated, I, I think, around a couple thousand folks, nearly 2,000, to uh, Fort Lee in Virginia, and has announced that they will be working on evacuating additional SIV applicants to other military bases, uh, which which is a start for sure. But you know, I, I think the entire process um, could have been. Uh, this entire backlog and this delay in evacuating people could have been um, could have been handled very differently because we've known, you know, I think Trump announced in February of 2020 that he was going to be withdrawing all troops from Afghanistan. Uh, so at, at that moment, we've known that this day is coming and these people are vulnerable. Congressmember Omar, your family came to the U.S. as Somali refugees. In your book, you so eloquently uh, talk about your um, growing up, your first eight years um, in Somalia. Talk about Somalia. Tell us, uh, you know more than anyone uh, being in Congress, how little information uh, most people understand about Africa unless they are from there. And then particularly Somalia, why you left, your experience as a refugee, which so informs what you do now working on immigration rights. Talk about your family. Well, my my story um, is is uniquely an, an American story, right? We we have been known as a country of of immigrants. There there has been um, uh, the arrival of of immigrants for a really long time from different parts of of the world. Uh, but we are now just seeing you know Somali immigrants, and there's a lot that is not understood. Um, and I thought it was really important for me to write this book and spend a lot of time. Um, telling people about the Somalia I grew up in, uh, where you know there there was a lot of warmth. Uh, I I had a really happy um, upbringing up to the age of eight. I grew up in a very loud, um, uh, loving family where you know we didn't we didn't really have uh, any any ideas of of hierarchy. We were all allowed to have. Um, the the freedom to to express ourselves to 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 own our our agency, um, and you know I grew up in in a in a household and in a community where um, music and the arts and um, and all of those things were were very vibrant, um, and you know the the tragedy of uh, living in that and then one day uh, waking up. Um, and having, you know, the kids that you played with uh, in the streets um, now carry guns uh, is is something that most people um, don't know. And I, I wanted to give people an insight of, of what happens when when a society is stable uh, and, you know, it's, it's not really um, nurturing that stability, how everything uh, can disappear in a day and how, you know, someone who had that happy upbringing finds herself in, in a refugee camp, um, missing, you know, four years of uh, formal education, 
coming to the United States, getting that golden ticket and opportunity uh, and, you know, overcoming a lot of the um, challenges that that continue to exist um, in in this country for people who who arrive without nothing um, and what it means to now have that voice in, in Congress, bringing attention to all of those disparities that exist here and in in countries like Somalia. Let me ask you about um, the issue of refugees, your, certainly your experience, um, and immigrant justice in the United States. Groups are now suing the Biden administration over its use of Title 42, that Trump-era policy that allows for the expedited deportation of asylum seekers arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, citing so-called public health concerns during the pandemic. The Biden administration says it'll continue enforcing the policy, which could bar entry to hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers. Human Rights Watch says over 600,000 have been expelled from the U.S under Title 42 since March of 2020, you know, going back through Trump. The lawsuit was filed by the ACLU, Raices, and Oxfam, among other groups, which denounced Title 42 as cruel, illegal, and a violation of due process rights. Your thoughts, Congressmember Omar? Uh, I, I think um, these, you know, Trump-era policies that the administration— chooses to um, keep in place are, are inhumane um, on, on a deep personal um, level. I, I got emotional just thinking about this right now because a lot of the people that come to, to our border um, are, you know, escaping desperate situations. And it's easy for people to judge. It's easy for people to, you know, um, talk about what what makes somebody come um, to the border until they find themselves there. And I think a lot about what would have happened um, if Kenya closed its borders um, to, to my family when we were fleeing and or chose to deport us back. Where would I have been today? And so for for me, it is really important for um for this administration and for every single person in this country to to realize that these policy choices have consequences and you know we have a, a moral imperative in in this country to um, get our immigration policy right and make it a more humane system we have um, the Citizenship Act, uh, you know, that we have been pushing for um, in, in Congress that would stabilize the status of 11 uh, million people in, in this country. We have been um, working so hard to try to come up with actual solutions um, to uh, our immigration uh, crisis. Uh, and it is um, disheartening. Uh, that instead of people working with us to find a solution, um, that they do the uh, easy thing that they that that sometimes seems um, might win you political favor, uh, might stop uh, some some headlines from um, being written, um, but you know chip away at, at your at your soul knowing that you are turning people away who desperately uh, need help um, and are coming to this country, knowing that we, we have 
um, been a country that, that welcomes people and, and provides opportunities for people. Something that might, I think, be worth noting for people just because your family went through this is just the, the level of application, paperwork, vetting, difficulty, hoops that one jumps through to become an official refugee of the United States is really, really onerous. This is not an easy process. It's a very long, drawn-out process. And I wonder if you think people... There's, I think, some conflating of us people presenting for asylum at the southern border and folks like your family that had to apply uh, from abroad. Right. Uh, and I think oftentimes uh, we forget just um, how lengthy of, of a process it is. Uh, you know, for my family, um, I would say it was one of the shortest processes. It was a couple of years. For a lot of families, it could be five, six, you know, 10 years, some 20 years um, to go through the, the process of getting vetted, uh, waiting um, for uh, a state uh, to be resettled in if you're coming to the United States. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a really long um, process. And, you know, as, as we even talk about capacity, you know, I want to remind people the, the kind of capacity challenges that we are talking about at the border really doesn't apply um, to, you know, capacity challenges existing with the refugee resettlement program because there are resettlement agencies that partner uh, with right. the United States government that, that do these, this processing that, that, uh, process a lot of the vetting that takes place, uh, and then help, uh, families when, when they get to the United States to get, you know, assimilated into, into society. And so those partners have come out and said, we have the capacity. We are ready for you not to only bring the 65,000 we've all been having a conversation about since inauguration, uh, but we can even do more than that. And what we want, what we are advocating for, is this administration to keep its promise, uh, what they campaigned on, what they have promised us since inauguration, uh, and what we know uh, to be uh, true uh, in regards to, to their policy and what may, they morally say they believe? Um, this is a personal question, so if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. But do you remember when your parents told you uh, or your family told you in Mombasa uh, that they'd gotten the green light, that they were that you actually were going to go to the United States. Yeah, it wasn't a conversation with me, but I do remember my grandfather and father uh, talking about us uh, starting the process of relocating to to the United States. And I remember um, there being a long interview process. Uh, I remember us waiting for nearly a year uh, to know if we would get a second interview. Mm. Um, I remember um, going through uh, testing, medical testing, other testing. Um, I remember us going to Nairobi uh, to do more processing work. Um, I remember the long process of orientation. Um, and I remember the long process of waiting uh, to hear if our flight had been scheduled. Mm. Uh, so it is not an easy process. And many of uh, the people who are in this refugee camps who have already started the process long ago, 
um, have been waiting uh, and uh, waiting for uh, their papers to, to get processed. We hear from so many people um, in the United States who have family members that they themselves have sponsored, uh, who are asking what is taking so long, when they will be reunited with their family members. Uh, this is, you know, something that people had high hopes for, something people fought so hard uh, to make sure um, that this new administration was going to be able to do. Uh, and it's just, you know, with desperation and frustration that we are speaking out uh, against the Biden administration um, in their their backtracking on this. And, and you know, we, we do applaud them um, for changing course. Uh, and we just want to make sure that they follow through with clear um, communication on what those numbers are going to be uh, so that we can feel comfortable where those numbers will land. If you ever wonder how Best of Left gets made, or more relevantly, if you ever thought about producing something with audio or video yourself and wondered where to start, I really encourage you to check out the software that I use. It's simple enough for a beginner, and the basics are free to use. You only pay if you need to get fancy. I was first attracted to the software for one feature related to how we produce our transcripts, and now it is the workhorse of the show. We put it through its paces, and it gets used constantly by myself, our producers, and the volunteer transcriptionists. It's a really innovative take on editing, bringing a whole new paradigm that makes it as easy to edit audio and video as it is to edit a Word document. So if you're thinking of doing pretty much anything with audio or video for public distribution or private use, check out the link in our show notes. If you end up signing up, we'll get a little kickback for sending you there. Outrage outside a detention center in New Jersey today. The disturbing images of small children being torn from their parents were troubling enough. The Trump administration is reportedly weighing their options of housing immigrant children at military bases. How did the United States get here? In the last 15 years, America has taken in more refugees than anywhere else in the world. A fraction of those refugees, asylum seekers, have grown in recent years to the point of overwhelming the current system. And now, the country is at a tipping point. The legal definition of a refugee is someone who isn't able to live safely in their home country, or has a really strong reason to fear that they won't be safe if they stay. Persecution that is racial, religious, political, or national, or targeting what's called a particular social group. Someone who's been persecuted can apply for refugee status in their home country or in the first country that they flee to, you know, where they might apply in a refugee camp, for example. An asylee is a refugee. It's just that they've already arrived at another country, like the United States, and fear going home. Here's how it works. Asylum seekers must fill out the I-589 application, a 12-page form. If that sounds complicated for someone fleeing an oppressive homeland, don't worry. There's a 14-page instruction booklet to help. Both the form and the instructions are only available in English. And the I-589 has to be filled out in English, or it'll get sent back. Not every asylum seeker necessarily understands the process or has the resources to kind of go about it exactly the right way. Customs and Border Protection itself has been accepting very few people in recent weeks who are presenting themselves for asylum. So people are waiting to 
be allowed to set foot in the U.S. and claim asylum for, you know, two weeks on bridges in Ciudad Juarez in the, you know, in the heat of summer. At a certain point, it starts to seem like the safer option to go in between ports of entry and risk breaking the law. If someone enters the United States without papers, they can't even file an asylum application until they convince the government in person that they're in danger at home. This is called credible fear. They're detained and given at least 48 hours before the credible fear interview, but asylees often must wait much longer. If the fear isn't deemed credible, an asylum seeker can be deported pretty much immediately unless they file an appeal. If that fear is deemed credible or the appeal is successful, they wait for a judge to review their application. Yeah, this is where the process gets very complicated depending on the circumstances of the case. An asylee might have a judge sympathetic to their case or one with a stricter view. They might end up waiting comfortably with family or they may be held in a detention center. And in spring 2018, they could even have been separated from their children under Trump administration policies. China has historically had the most applicants for asylum to the United States, and that hasn't changed. But applications from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras have increased 234% in the past three years, with more applicants in that time period than the previous 17 years combined. This area is called the Northern Triangle. Civil wars and political unrest from the 1950s through the 1980s left institutions unstable. Violence, extreme poverty, and crime stemming from drug and gang activity is widespread. Asylees fleeing this area aren't responsible for the danger they live in. They're trying to escape it. In the Northern Triangle, it's a little more complicated because instead of talking about persecution by the government, we're talking about often persecution by gangs. So whether they qualify for asylum is up for interpretation by immigration judges. And all of this is being debated while the current system is straining just to keep up. The backlog of asylum caseloads has surged since 2012, and immigration attorneys have cited waits as long as five years. The Trump administration thinks that the solution here is to make it harder to even pass the initial screening interview. If you think of the asylum system as a multi-stage process, which it is, that starts with, you know, asking for and getting a credible fear interview and ends with finally getting asylum, people are falling off at every stage of that process. Very few people who start by asking for credible fear screenings in the U.S. are ultimately getting their asylum claims approved at the end. They essentially may be deprived of due process uh, in trying to get asylum. And so people who do have legitimate persecution claims are going to get sent back, which theoretically is exactly the outcome that this entire system is set up to prevent. It's a hard question to ask. Why did you stay? Why didn't you go? Did you think about going? Why didn't you go? There actually sometimes I made a lot of people cry by mistake because obviously when you move, it's often associated with a big life change, a divorce or a loss of a family member or your mother throwing you out the house or you've lost your job. 
So when you ask the question, it's often quite traumatic sometimes to give the answer. But yeah, people just think through, well, actually, what is it? Okay, what is it that I stay here for? Oh, it's because my husband won't leave his mother, you know, or it's it's because the memory of my dead mother is here. It's often, you know, they're the reasons people choose. But I think Michael would agree. It's actually quite hard to get to the bottom of it. When we give a reason, we give one of many influences on why we move, maybe the one that we remember the most, or maybe the one that's easiest to tell a stranger, but is never really the whole story. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So one of the really fascinating things about studying migration is that it's not the migration itself, the actual movement, it's that inevitably you're studying things which are really fundamental to people's lives. I mean, that the human element seems so critical. And I think, you know, researchers in these kinds of areas are often quite rightly criticized for working on marginalized communities rather than with them. And Michael, actually, your team has actually been working, I think, with migrants in, in the cities you're studying quite directly. Can you tell us a bit about that? We've been conducting a whole range of different community meetings. Um, we've been doing different sorts of engagement with interviews. We've started on a, a related project training people to make films and working with them to do participatory films. So they take a lot of the choices around what they film and how they film and how they take control of the story really is the important thing. We've also been working with comics in Somaliland, in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka and in Zimbabwe to narrate relatively complex stories in much simpler ways that could be understood in school classes, for example. Um, they're often useful for communicating with policymakers as well in that context, that um, you know, a story that can be told in two pages of comic books comes across a lot more clearly and a lot more quickly than a lot of data and a lot of statistics in many cases. I did some research, I wouldn't say it's participatory as that, but with refugees in Lebanon, Syrian refugees, and I also used a comic actually, and I'd, I got, it was a playwright, he's actually a playwright, wrote the script based on the themes of the research, and then illustrator drew it, and Going back to this idea of the complexity of human decisions around migration, they captured all those, I think, quite beautifully in the comic in a way that you, you couldn't do in numbers. So in some ways, they're more simple. In some ways, they're able to capture a complexity that you couldn't get across in numbers. I suppose if I was to put myself in the place of a policymaker who sometimes has to live in a world that strips away complexity for quite necessary reasons, I mean, how would you see this kind of work and the kinds of research you're doing potentially informing policy decisions? And, and what would you expect policymakers to be doing based on the kinds of evidence that you're collecting? There are a lot of good people doing a lot of statistical work, you know, a lot of amazing geographers finding data sets on environmental change, finding data sets of intra and intercountry mobility and coming up with quite similar conclusions a lot of the time. In terms of what we're asking people to do, I mean, actually, I'm funny you should ask that. I'm on the UK Climate Change Risk Assessment and our chapter is about the international dimensions. And one of those sections is about migration overseas due to increased extreme weather. And, you know, my recommendation there was that we've got to start looking at potential future receiving countries, maybe not in the short term, the UK, but we've got to look at issues like xenophobia. Why do we fear people from the outside and why are we so bad sometimes or, or why does integration or you know you wouldn't say the word you know we don't want people to assimilate but why do those issues of kind of bringing communities together sometimes fail so badly would you say helen that the situation is actually increasing xenophobia i think it's used as a distraction tactic there's a lot tied up in that question i think climate migration has got tied up with broader debates around xenophobia at the moment and i don't think you can analyze them separately we're in a world where we're closing borders we're in a world where we're becoming a little bit inward looking and we're analyzing climate migration in that context 
I mean, Michael, maybe this is a moment to open up that term climate refugee, which is one that has entered, I guess, the policy discourse and that we hear, you know, in a reasonably frequent basis in the media. Helen has given us reasons to be maybe a bit suspicious of how that term is used. I mean, do you share that or do you think it's it's doing important work? Yeah, I share that entirely. I think the main source of a lot of the suspicion and fear around migration that is at the root of xenophobia is a misunderstanding of the potential for climate migration. So we've seen statistics batted around over the last 20 years about you know upwards of 20 million people who will be on the move and everybody thinks well they're all going to come to Britain and our research shows that I mean firstly as Helen said earlier people really want to stay where they are unless they absolutely have to move in the most part and where people have to move they tend to go pretty nearby you know they don't have the resources to travel internationally they don't want to travel internationally they think that if they go to the nearby city then Maybe if things improve, they can come back to their crops. They can. They want to be close by. All of these things are, I think, important to get across in as many ways as we can to show that this isn't something that, that we should be afraid of. It's also another reason to be suspicious of these kind of statistics. It's incredibly difficult to know when someone has migrated as a result of climate. I mean, ultimately, one point that I try and make all the time is that nobody migrates because of climate. Everybody migrates because of a whole range of things, which are affected in themselves by climate. When you speak to someone and say, why did you move? Nobody says, well, I moved because of the climate. They'll say, well, I moved because my crops failed, or I moved because my animals died, or I moved because the land that I was trying to live on was gradually being eaten away by the river. Climate doesn't come into the way people explain their own movement. In many cases, people move in advance of significant climate change. There's a real complexity to this, which means that people aren't moving directly as a result of climate change. It's very difficult to attribute numbers to that sort of complexity of movement. And often, as we started with at the beginning, it's not necessarily a question of having to move, but what are the resources to support alternatives? And one of the reasons why it's so surprising in this country to see people who are grouped in that climate migrant, climate refugee situation is because we assume that that's something that happens elsewhere. And generally, where we don't have the resources to build sea defences or to respond to irrigation, to agricultural change, then that's where people have to move. So it's significantly a question of resources as much as actual choices that people are making. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com slash support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. 
The deadliest border crossing in the world is the Mediterranean Sea between Africa and Europe. The first four months of 2015 were the most dangerous yet. In a few cases, migrants are coming from countries that have been dealing with conflict or civil war. The Syrian civil war has created millions of refugees. Often migrants will come from sub-Saharan Africa for economic purposes to Libya. Since Libya has become much less stable itself in the last few years, they have nowhere to go but north. If you're a migrant in sub-Saharan Africa and you want to make it all the way to Lampedusa, it costs about $10,000. That's about 18 years worth of salary. So what they do is go as far as they can pay and then work for a while in forced labor to the people who are transporting them. At that point, it's no longer smuggling. If you're being coerced into labor or being forced into labor, then you're a victim of human trafficking. Some people are flying to try to swim, but they cannot swim. Many people die inside the water. It was very hard. Often you'll have hundreds of migrants on a ship at once. In one case that got a lot of attention throughout Europe earlier this year and generated a lot of humanitarian outcry, a boat with 700 migrants on it sank. The Frontex Plus operation will substitute, take over uh, Mare Nostrum. When they took over this operation in the Mediterranean last fall, the European Union said that we weren't going to solve the problem unless we tackle the root causes. To address the long-term problem without addressing the short-term solution leaves a lot of people in the dust. First of all, what will make the situation worse is doing nothing. In the wake of cases that brought attention to just how deadly the Mediterranean had become, the European Union has decided that it's going to restore some search and rescue in the Mediterranean. I'm going because of Italia. My country is not good. Every time it's fighting. Like me, I'm walking and some people is telling me if you walk in that walk, we're going to kill you. That's why I'm fear. There is a lot of xenophobia going around Europe right now. UK domestic politics have definitely taken an anti-immigrant turn over the last few years. Both the Conservative Party and the center-left Labour Party have been moving right on the issue of immigration, not just from outside Europe, but even within the EU. The US may have something to teach Europe about how it views immigrants and how openly xenophobia is expressed and tolerated, but Europe has something to teach the US about whether or not you can expect a long-term policy solution to pay off immediately, or whether you're leaving people to suffer in the short term. Putting faith in the Mediterranean has always been Russian roulette. This November has been a particularly wicked month. The woman from Guinea in West Africa was crying for her six-month-old son, Joseph. They were among a hundred people on board a dinghy that cast off from Libya. Most were saved by Spain's Proactiva Open Arms, the only non-profit running a civilian rescue service in the Med. Proactiva's director, Ricardo Gatti. The rubber the boat, totally divide the two tubes, the floating tube divides one the other, and all the people directly fell in, in, into the sea. Six people died, including baby Joseph. The baby was recovered, but after some hours, the baby started to get, they stopped breathing.
A similar capsize was captured on video by the crew of an aircraft operated by the European border agency Frontex. These people had set off from Libya towards Italy. Frontex alerted Libyan coast guards who rescued 102 people. Two bodies were recovered. These migrants could so easily have suffered the fate of another dinghy which earlier capsized off the Libyan coast with the loss of over 70 lives. Speaking from the Libyan port of Misrata, Steve Perbrick of Doctors Without Borders. We're dealing with survivors of a shipwreck, a number of which who have gasoline and uh, saltwater burns, so nasty chemical burns, in addition to the mental health needs of people who have seen their loved ones drown in front of them, who have been fighting for the space on the, the boat that has collapsed as well uh, in order to save themselves. Some of the victims of the disaster described by Perbrick washed up on beaches and were found by Libyan fishermen. Carrying dreams of a new life in Europe, they'd crossed the Sahara Desert to reach the North African coast. But Libya is one of the most dangerous places on earth. We hear numerous cases of abuses, uh, of torture for ransom, as well as uh, other forms of violence that's directed towards the migrants who have little to no legal protection inside Libya. 23-year-old Mouliam Suleiman was lucky. He was picked up by Doctors Without Borders earlier this year. He's from Cameroon in West Africa, where an insurgency has forced half a million people to flee their homes. We have decided to leave our home because we don't really feel satisfied with home because of war, be it economic, social or political problems. At least, I think Europe should send us a hand. We really need your hand. Europe's five-year-long migration crisis has been punctuated with tragedies that only witnesses remember. This was July 2016 off the Libyan coast. 22 perished after their dinghy sprang a leak. In their haste to get off, the migrants were stepping on the corpses of people who'd been alive an hour earlier. Nine months earlier, an overcrowded boat went down off the Greek island of Lesbos. More than 70 people are believed to have drowned. There was an enormous outpouring of public sympathy five years ago. But one of the real problems was that the sympathy didn't translate into empathy. Sonia Skeets runs Freedom From Torture, a London-based non-profit. We are still seeing refugees as, as others, you know, people not like us, to feel pity for at these particular moments when our emotions are, are heightened. As far as non-profits are concerned, the situation in the Mediterranean has deteriorated. This video leaves no doubt about their stance. EU governments are doing everything they can to deny their responsibility to those seeking safety turning a blind eye to those in distress, leaving people adrift for hours or even days without food, water or medical attention. It's a policy of stopping people at any cost. Bowie is the humanitarian affairs advisor of Doctors Without Borders, or MSF. We first met four years ago during a three-week-long assignment aboard the Aquarius, the non-profit's rescue ship. The Italian government forced the Aquarius out of the Mediterranean. It was replaced by another vessel, Sea Watch 4. But that too has now been impounded by the Italians. MSF, since it has been at sea trying to save people uh, who are trying to cross the sea, has been subjected to a campaign of harassment and criminalization of its activities. A campaign of criminalization that is very reminiscent of authoritarian governments and certainly not 
of European countries ostensibly committed to the rule of law. Doctors Without Borders and Proactiva accuse the Frontex border force of helping Libyan coast guards to return migrants to inhuman conditions and possible torture. Frontex denies participating in illegal pushbacks. It says it adheres to international law by alerting the nearest national rescue centre when it spots a vessel in distress, and in many cases that means Libya. The European Commission, the executive arm of the EU, has recently outlined plans for a new migration policy. It proposes fast-track screening of potential asylum seekers before they cross external borders. It's an attempt to discourage people from setting sail in dangerous craft. But Hannah Behrens, director of the Brussels-based Migration mm -hmm. Policy Institute, has little confidence that it'll stop people from coming. There's so little room to move through these kind of legal channels such as resettlement. There are very limited opportunities to come to Europe through legal migration. So these people who are often very desperate, whether it's because they're fleeing persecution or because they're having very little chances to sustain themselves at home, they will continue to move to Europe. And in the absence of very legal and safe channels, they will have to rely on smugglers and other um, more criminal networks. In a sign of increasing desperation, thousands of Africans trying to reach Europe by avoiding Libya are taking to the Atlantic Ocean with its storms and currents. They're launching from Senegal in West Africa and aiming for Spain's Canary Islands a thousand miles away. 17,000 people have made the harrowing journey this year, a tenfold increase from 2019. The Spanish authorities have been building emergency camps to cope with the recent influx. Senegalese activists say that clandestine emigration is nothing new, but this year has been catastrophic, with nearly 500 deaths recorded. This week, eight more people were added to that ghastly toll. Found on the shores of the Canaries, their remains were carried on stretchers, wrapped in emergency blankets. There's little doubt the waves will continue to be mass graves, as long as life is so bad at home that people are prepared to take these kinds of risks to escape. Let's begin with an old saying often attributed to that great expert in the field of human evil, Joseph Stalin. When one man dies, that's a tragedy. When thousands die, that's a statistic. Large numbers can feel cold and distant and even kind of comforting because they don't feel like people. And I think that's one of the reasons much of the world was able to ignore the years-old Syrian refugee crisis until recently. But then after thousands of refugees died this year trying to get to Europe, one three-year-old boy's body washed ashore in Turkey. His name was Elon Kurdi and he drowned with his five-year-old brother and his mom trying to get to Greece. His father, Abdullah, survived and has now returned to Syria to bury his wife and children. In fact, when offered the opportunity to resettle in another country, Abdullah said, now I don't want anything. What was precious is gone. To talk about the refugee crisis, we need statistics, but let us not forget what is precious. So for the past four and a half years, there has been a horrific civil war in Syria, which began with the hope of the 2011 Arab Spring protests. Several dictatorships were toppled during the Arab Spring, although some have since ended up with new dictators. But in Syria, long-reigning dictator Bashar al-Assad has refused to relinquish power and instead has battled the rebellion with astonishing violence, including torturing children and gassing his own people with chemical weapons. So back 
in 2011, Syria had a population of 22.4 million people. Here's what it looks like today. More than 250,000 people have been killed. About 10.6 million Syrians, less than half the population, still live in their homes. 7.6 million people have been forced to flee within Syria, either moving to refugee camps or to areas that are for the moment safer. And another 4 million Syrians have left the country entirely. Of those people, about 1.6 million currently live in Turkey. There are about a million each in Lebanon and Jordan. And there are a few hundred thousand more in Iraq and Egypt. 95% of Syrian refugees live in those countries, and they have been stretched incredibly thin by this refugee crisis. Jordan's population is now 25% refugees. You've probably seen the huge sprawling camps in Jordan and Lebanon for refugees. And everything is completely underfunded because the UN's refugee agency doesn't have nearly enough money to deal with this number of refugees. And in Turkey, most refugees live in a kind of legal limbo outside of camps because Turkey doesn't expel them, but they also aren't allowed to work. So even though many Syrians have good educations and labor skills, they can't make a living, and so in search of lasting refuge, thousands have turned to Europe. And they pay smugglers thousands of euros to get them via boat from Turkey, Morocco, or Egypt to Malta, southern Italy, or Greece's southern islands. Those smugglers are essentially the only people benefiting from Europe's inconsistent, inhumane, and disorganized response to the refugee crisis. To quote the UN's High Commissioner on Refugees, more effective international cooperation is required to crack down on smugglers, including those operating inside the EU, but in ways that allow for the victims to be protected. But none of these efforts will be effective without opening up more opportunities for people to come legally to Europe and find safety upon arrival. And that leads us to a very important distinction between the words migrant and refugee. This has often been called a migrant crisis, but it really isn't, because migrants choose to leave their homes in search of better education or employment opportunities. Refugees, to again quote the UNHCR, are persons fleeing armed conflict or persecution. These are people for whom the denial of asylum has potentially deadly consequences. And ever since the 1951 Refugee Commission, refugees have had certain rights under international law. These include the right not to be returned to their country of origin if their safety cannot be assured, the right not to be penalized for entering a country illegally if they request asylum, and the rights to life, security, religious expression, primary education, free access to courts, and equal treatment by taxing authorities. If a migrant arrives illegally in the European Union, they can be turned around and in most countries sent home fairly quickly. But a refugee, and most of the people arriving in Europe right now are refugees, they have certain rights under international law that all of Europe and basically all of the world has agreed to for the last 65 years. In short, European countries have no obligations to refugees until those refugees arrive in Europe. But once a refugee is in your country, you have certain legal responsibilities to them, and that's why the boat smuggling has continued. European governments want to make it difficult for refugees to get to Europe. They benefit when the trip is dangerous. If it were made safe or easy, there would be far more refugees coming to Europe. The real solution to dramatically increase the number of refugees legally accepted through non-smuggling routes like a quota system, well, that stuff's politically unpopular. But until legal opportunities are available, the smuggling and deaths will continue. To again quote the UNHCR, thousands of refugee parents are risking the lives of their children on unsafe smuggling boats primarily because they have no choice. And this is true not only for Syrians, because only about half the people seeking asylum through these sea routes are from Syria. Another 12% are from Afghanistan, which was the world's leading producer of refugees for 30 years until Syria came along. Another 8% are from the Northeast African nation of Eritrea, which has one of the worst human rights records on earth. Its government has been cited by the UN for executions, torture, forced labor, and systemic rape by government officials. So about 70% of the people trying to get to Europe are from those three countries. Of course, there are also many migrants trying to get to Europe via these 
these dangerous overwater routes. But most of the people we're hearing about on the news are refugees, and the distinction is incredibly important. Okay, so we have this massive humanitarian crisis. Who's to blame? Pretty much everybody. I mean, the Assad regime definitely gets a lot of the blame. But so do Iran and Russia and China, who are providing direct or indirect support to that regime and doing very little about the resulting refugee crisis. The Arab states of the Gulf, although they've pledged financial support to Syrian refugees, have accepted zero, zero refugees from Syria. Australia's refugee record is truly abysmal and possibly in violation of international law. Canada is accepting 30% fewer refugees than they were a decade ago. And the United United States is to blame as well. We've accepted a tiny number of Syrian refugees, fewer, for instance, than Brazil. And instead of talking seriously about how to address the refugee crisis, our immigration debate has become increasingly racist and irrational. For instance, you often hear in the US and Europe that immigrants are disproportionately likely to commit crimes. But that's simply untrue. A huge body of data says that refugees and first-generation immigrants to the United States commit crimes at a much lower rate than other Americans. Okay, and then there's Europe. The truth is, the xenophobic response to the refugee crisis seen from some European governments are just shameful. Like when Hungary's prime minister says that they must keep Muslims out of Europe to quote, keep Europe Christian. He's not just denying the multicultural and multi-religious history of Europe, he's denying the international law that requires countries to protect and house refugees regardless of their religious beliefs. Hank, when discussing refugees, I often hear, well, it's not our problem, or we have to take care of our people. But we are one species sharing one profoundly interconnected world, and humans, all humans, are our people. And when the oppressed and marginalized die because they are oppressed and marginalized, the powerful are at fault. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, discussing the Biden administration's plans for relocating Afghan refugees. In a second Democracy Now! clip, they spoke with Ilhan Omar about her life story and the consequences of policy choices. All In With Chris Hayes also spoke with Ilhan Omar about the refugee application process and the legacy of Trump policies. Vox gave an overview of why applying for asylum in the U.S. is so hard. Art and Ideas discuss the concept of climate refugees and the real reasons why people decide to leave their homes. Vox explained the deadly crossing of the Mediterranean Sea for refugees fleeing Africa into Europe. The PBS NewsHour described the nonprofits working in the Mediterranean and the policies of European countries that make the crossing so treacherous. And the Vlog Brothers explained the 10,000-foot perspective on refugees using the Syrian war as a lens. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the documentary podcast looking at a small town in Texas with a high population of refugees, and In the Thick, which looked at the legacy of refugees fleeing the end of the Vietnam War. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. My name's Mike. I'm from Texas, and I was just calling to let you know I got turned on to your podcast actually via Unaffing the Republic, 
I know it's usually the other way around, but that's how it worked. And I've listened to several episodes in the last week, probably 30 or 40 episodes, just really enjoying the compilation and the different things you pull from all over the world of progressive media. I appreciate the work you're doing, and I just, I, I haven't gotten into the full archive, but I know with, I, as I said, I'm from Texas, so with this new law that is going into effect pretty soon, uh, banning all abortions, I would love to possibly see some stuff on that that might be new stuff that I hadn't seen before. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, and uh, keep doing the good work. Hey, Jay, this is Dan here from uh, Greenville, South Carolina, flying the blue flag in a red state here. Um, just listen to your last show there about Afghanistan, which is awesome. And then just the discussion at the end about uh, Joe Manchin and a Democrat. And I think there's a lot of attention put on him because the Senate is split 50-50. But let's look at Manchin, too. He's like a unicorn. He's a Democrat who's electable in West Virginia. And yeah, why his politics may not be as progressive and stuff like that, he allows us to have right now that 50-50 Senate, which means we control the committees in the Senate. We have the chairs, you know. Why he is not voting the way a lot would like to see him vote, he is does give the power that Democrats have the Senate. So I think there's a lot of undue focus put on him. Um, if you asked him, like, what are the Democrats going to get elected in Virginia, West Virginia? Um, I think the real focus needs to be on winning other states. Like, you know, we should have won more states in the 2020 election, you know, North Carolina. That's where the issues need to be worked. More purple states where they are winnable. So I just think there's a lot of misplaced focus at times put on mentions. But look at what he does do. He's a unicorn in a red state. And um, he, right now, that's got us the majority. So, yeah, you know, right now, focus on the next go around and what other ones are winnable to get above that 50. Anyway, thanks a lot. Great show. And take care. Cheers. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. First, we heard from Mike from Texas, so welcome to the show. It's good to hear from you. Our latest abortion episode, if you haven't gotten to it yet, is number 1430 from July 24th or thereabouts, depending on your time zone, I think. But I, I'm sure we'll be covering it again soon, so stay tuned for that. Dan from North Carolina called in and was talking about Joe Manchin and control of the Senate, and so I have some further thoughts on this. Dan's response and, and explanation is the sort of simple explanation that people who follow politics know, generally, the mechanics of the control of the Senate and so forth. Those who suggest that we need to follow strategies that buck that traditional wisdom, I think, generally claim to be looking at a bigger picture, thinking outside the box, and, and you know, advocating for something that they know is outside the box. They know that it is beyond the, the horizon of this congressional term and who's controlling the Senate committees and all of that. 
So this this usually goes hand in hand with, first of all, not reflexively labeling the Democratic Party as the good guys, you know, we being in control or something like that because of the Democratic Party is control. It's not necessarily the equivalent of progressives being in control, as I think most people recognize. And then secondly, suggesting that their strategies will maybe help break that two-party stranglehold or even if it causes short-term setbacks, will have long-term benefits. Those sorts of things are, are usually what go into th- these outside-the-box uh, strategies. And as much as I'm open to new and interesting strategies, the problem is I've never heard an argument or an explanation for how one could viably work. And I'm not talking about a, a geometric proof for how it can be guaranteed to work. I just mean a general theory, like, here's how I think it could work. If we do A, then that might cause B to happen. That's all I mean. The closest I have ever heard to a theory along these lines actually being given some shape was back in 2016 when uh, primarily it was Jimmy Dore who I was hearing say this, but the broader Bernie or Bust crowd was arguing along the lines that a long-term strategy for progressives should include preventing Hillary Clinton from winning the presidency and thereby perpetuating neoliberalism any farther by allowing Trump to win. And the argument went like this. If Trump wins, it'll be an absolute disaster. Things will get as bad as any of us can imagine as progressives. And that will help wake the country up to the dangers of pure, unfiltered, destructive conservatism entirely unleashed. And the response will be enormous. The political backlash will be the biggest we've ever seen, and anti-Trump sentiment will sweep in progressive change like an unstoppable wave. And at the time... I thought that this theory had a chance of being right, but I still thought that it was immoral to pursue due to all of the inevitable death and destruction that would happen along the way, particularly because the impacts would be felt most strongly by people who don't look like Jimmy Dore and the others spearheading the Bernie or Bus movement and making this argument. There was also the possibility that it just wouldn't work at all. Now, with the benefit of about five years of hindsight— I think it's a decidedly mixed bag. We did have the women's movement, which was record-breaking and somewhat progressive. 2018 was the year that we saw the squad elected in a wave of anti-Trump voting, just as predicted. But in 2020, we elected Joe Biden, the, the prince of neoliberalism and American imperialism. So we got a little bit of progress. Progressive ideas are gaining more traction in the Democratic Party than they were in 2016. But now we're digging out of a four-year unmitigated disaster, the brunt of which was predictably felt most strongly by those least eager to adopt the Bernie or Bust strategy because of their inherent vulnerability to that strategy. So that was an out-of-the-box theory of change, and this is how it worked out. So just take that as a a set of data points and do with that information as you will. Now, there's also this sort of anti-theory of change strategy that lends itself to to this other way of thinking of of getting outside the box, 
but this is getting outside the box so far, it's, it's like advocating against the idea of having a strategy. So a member and regular commenter on Patreon has been writing in response to this original call and, and my discussion about Joe Manchin. And that listener's driving point has been that insisting on having a theory of change is de facto moderating, that it's a strategy used by moderates who don't want progress as a method of slowing down the conversation and ultimately helping it to just stall out. And this listener went on to explain that, quote, you want a theory of change? That phrase in itself is absurd on its face since it comes from a supremely American way of thinking, feeling, acting, advocating, and it comes from, drumroll please, the corporate sector of the U.S. Oh yes, that is what you're advocating, that we use this system whose origins are from corporate America to figure out what is legitimate, complete with charts and diagrams and questions and checklists ad nauseum. So no, I don't have a theory of change, and I don't think any fucking oppressed person in history has ever felt they needed one to be a serious and legitimate counterforce to whatever the prevailing status quo is that they live under presently. You know it's indefensible, but you still look to a theory of change. Fuck that. Full stop. We don't need it. End quote. And so, okay, I'm, I'm open to a differing idea, but the weird thing is that this is how she ended up concluding her thoughts. Quote, if we want to have fundamental radical change here, then we need human rights enshrined into our laws. Just like anyone who has ever fought, it is the bare fucking minimum. Without it, we can lose anything and everything at the whim of a political party. Unquote. So as I as I told her, and I'll say again now, I, I hate to break the news, but advocating for the passing of human rights laws is inescapably part of a theory of change, no matter how distasteful one might find that phrase. Unless you are calling for a violent overthrow, which actually, in and of itself, would also be a theory of change, then the only other option is to advocate for progress through the political process, which it turns out she is doing. Enshrining human rights into law is a great place to start. That's a great theory. Now let's figure out how that can happen. Well, we can get enough human rights supporting politicians elected and pressure them to prioritize human rights legislation, or we can demand that Congress write a constitutional amendment, or we could write a constitutional amendment and call for a constitutional convention circumventing Congress. And to do any of those things will require organizing and strategizing and utilizing finite energy and resources and human capacity into the power to force change, which is the definition of running an activism campaign. And before you know it, you're in an office somewhere looking at charts with the goal of figuring out how to best use your resources to make the greatest impact, and you have become exactly that which you despise. Or you could invent a new way of organizing ideas into a movement and a movement into political power and political power into lasting policy change. As always, I'm open to new ideas. But if your idea is to just shout from the sidelines with a sense of moral superiority, then what you're really doing is just letting someone else do the hard work of making change for you. So I still argue that theories of change are an 
inescapable part of the process. But none of this is to say that some out-of-the-box thinking that takes a longer view than congressional committee chairmanships in any given cycle couldn't possibly come along and be a genuinely good idea with a real possibility of working. I'm always actively on the lookout for new and better strategies to move us forward. So keep the ideas coming. And as always, keep the comments coming at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmaster and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.